Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared and host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS industry thought leaders, executives, and people just like you to discuss what metrics, KPIs, and benchmarks they use to enable better data-driven metrics-informed decisions that accelerate revenue performance and increase enterprise value. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Constantine Garica, longtime friend and co-founder of LinkedIn. Today, we'll be covering three main areas. Lessons learned from founding the world's largest B2B social network. Constantine's insights to share with founders and operators who are creating today's new B2B communities. And advice for founders moving from idea to product market fit to scaling. Constantine, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Hey, Ray, good to chat with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. And you asked about the journey. And when we started LinkedIn, there was five of us. And we roughly were similar age. So we all had about 10 years of work experience, I think. And for the years before, about four or five years, I had actually been consulting of doing B2B consulting. My expertise was in launching companies and helping them establish their positioning. And, you know, the interesting thing was when I started this, I spoke with someone who had done this successfully. And they said, the first thing you should not do is create your own website. And they said, because when you create a website, you just get random people contacting you and you spend a bunch of time writing proposals and things like that. And that's just a waste of time because usually the people who end up hiring you should come through someone through a referral. And so I had a few clients to start with. So that was great. And then when I, you know, what I found out is over time is when I was looking for a new client, I would basically have lunch with my older clients and, you know, always was interested to see how things turned out for them. But then usually I would became top of mind to say like, oh, actually, I know this person. They could really use your help and made a referral. And then it was always very easy. So what I learned from that experience is that really to get new business, a lot of it is by referral, especially in kind of the services business and B2B. But I saw that this is similar to hiring people full time. People tend to prefer people where they know somebody who's worked with someone in the past. In sales, obviously, connection is always helpful. So you don't come in cold. But also in things like investment banking, where they're doing due diligence on investment, they want to get some information that's not publicly available, because that's really the competitive advantage. And so people often do not feel comfortable talking publicly, but if there's a shared contact that provides the trust, then it happens. So that was kind of the rationale as to how can we do these referrals in a more effective way than sort of randomly meeting up with an old colleague for lunch. Can it be done more efficiently so that one could find referrals in a kind of more targeted way if you're looking to get a referral to a certain journalist or maybe to a certain engineer or maybe to a certain director of IT. How do you know which of your contacts knows that person? And when we started LinkedIn, there was no such thing available. So we felt this would be a good thing to start. Very interesting. And what's really interesting is LinkedIn's different because you had five co-founders. Was that just like-minded people who had a common vision or how did the five of you come together? 
Well, also it came together also kind of through referrals and shared contacts. So for example, Reed and I had a common friend from Stanford and she told us that both me and him were always telling her about business plans and ideas. And she said, you know, you two should really talk to each other because you guys got so many ideas. And I knew Reed for quite a few years where we would give each other feedback. We both had an interest in starting a company at some point. And then a couple of the other co-founders were from school and from a prior startup that we had worked with. Again, kind of a tight team, people who've known each other for a while. That's one of the great things about Silicon Valley for 20, 25 years. I still remember right at the beginning of LinkedIn, it might even be before you formally founded the company, you were looking for, I think, an enterprise sales introduction somehow. And you picked up the phone and you called me. And I still remember when we met after you founded LinkedIn, it's like, you know, it's kind of like when I call you and need to be introduced to someone, we're just trying to do that at scale and using an automation platform to do it. So. That's right. I, I remember I was with PC Order, which was kind of a spin out from Trilogy down in Austin. And I was working with them and developed kind of as I usually do, their key messaging, value proposition, and so forth. And I needed to speak with some people who fit that target audience to make sure what we came up with was actually relevant to them. And so at the time, I cold called you, but it is a lot easier when you have a connection. And I think over time, we found out we actually share quite a few contacts. So if I had LinkedIn, I wouldn't have had to just leave a cold message. I think you were at GM at the time. Well, you were a co-founder and you were the founding VP of marketing at LinkedIn. So can you share any lessons for our audience about the journey, a founder's journey, moving from the concept and idea to initially generating value to the membership and then deciding kind of how to monetize that? But let's start with moving from concept to generating value to members and how you measured that value you were delivering. Yeah, so the key thing is, I think, to have some use cases in mind that either you know of from firsthand, like in my case, but sometimes entrepreneurs start a company where you know, they've heard from a lot of people about something that isn't working as well as it could. And then you build it. Sometimes people like to just ask people and do lots of surveys. We feel that surveys are kind of helpful to understand how people think about things and what they value. But in terms of when you're really producing kind of a new kind of product, like what we were going to do, we felt the best thing is to actually build it and show it to them and then use that feedback. So the value of LinkedIn would be in these referrals and finding out who your contacts know, which people probably knew 5 to 10% of who their contacts know just by interacting with them and sometimes hearing them talking about a certain person or knowing which companies they've worked with. But again, then you don't know, like, who do they know at the company? So we knew there was some visibility. We knew we had people interest in that. So we decided to just build a product where people can use it. Now, the particular problem for us was when you'd actually do a search, you need to have enough people in the network so that when you search for something specific, you get a couple decent results that are connected to you through your contacts. So it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. And so we needed to figure out how we do that. And that was a big challenge at the beginning. Certainly, we couldn't just acquire customers or members the usual way through ads or things like that, because that would have been too expensive, because just to have sort of a basic usability, we figured we need about a million members. But the good thing was about LinkedIn is that there was a natural incentive for people to bring more of their contacts onto LinkedIn. So we basically relied exclusively on our members to invite their contacts. 
We never ran ads, never spent any money on marketing in those first four years, except in basic PR. Because the product really only works well if your contacts are on it. So once people understood what it is, they were naturally wanting to invite people. They knew that you know the more of their contacts they're connected to, the more of those contacts they were able to see and get referrals to. So that's when we sort of created, we made an easy to use invitation system that made it easy to get to your Outlook contacts. So it's not a lot of work. And then we also made sure that, and that was a lot of the work in the first couple of years to kind of refine what that quick pitch is that's in the email invitation and when people respond to that invitation. Until we had about a million members and that was key. And there were a couple of things that we tried that didn't really work as well. And that's natural in a startup. You do some tests. We did a lot of A-B testing to see what actually worked. So you mentioned a million members. So what was the magic number about that? Was there some type of statistical analysis that said to be able to have valid searches by role function, by industry, that's what you needed? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was just sort of something we felt like you need a certain number when you look for someone. So we actually discouraged people from even using the product for searching in the early days by not building the features at all or making them kind of hidden, just keeping them very basic. Because I remember a friend of mine who is a lawyer in Las Vegas, and we had about 40,000 members. We had just gotten funding from Sequoia. And he said, well, you know, I understand your product and I gave it a try. I was looking for a paralegal with trademark experience. And Craigslist has been kind of annoying. As soon as I post something, I get like 150 resumes and a lot of them are garbage. It just takes a lot of time. So I'd rather like search for a specific candidate. And he put that in and he got a grand total of three results. <laughs> so needless to say, he wasn't very impressed because while well, Craigslist flooded him with resumes, just sort of seeing three people who are in Las Vegas, a paralegal with trademark experience, really just those three criteria was just too small of a set. So really needed to build out the set till for a decent number of people that the search results were good. And we tracked those kinds of things. We looked at how many people did searches and how many results did they get. And so that's kind of how the 1 million initial idea and then sort of validated over time. And how long did it take you to get to a million members? I think it was about a year. I don't have it exactly in my mind, but it was really sort of these invitations they start very slowly because we're just inviting the people that we know and then they invite from there. But over time, if that's a positive ratio, it snowballs. So the last 500,000 was a lot quicker than the first 500,000. And we made some mistakes. So when we, at first, we sort of put in the invitation text, kind of like, join LinkedIn, you know, and then we provided a link to learn more about it. And what we found is people were clicking on the link, learning more about LinkedIn, and I think Ben decided, I don't quite get it. I don't know what it's for. I've got to go to a meeting. Maybe I'll look at it later and then would never come back. So we knew if we wanted people to really understand what LinkedIn was overall. At this point, that was not the most important thing. At this point, we just needed to convince them to click on it, that there's some specific value to them. And so, for example, some things we did is if, well, let's say I sent an invitation to one of my friends, it would say, Constantine knows an executive at General Motors or at General Electric or at Microsoft or at Yahoo, and he knows you know, two or three at these other companies. Would you like to find out who they are? If so, click here. 
But that was a very concrete, like people knew that my contacts would be interesting to them, but we didn't say who they were. They had to click. We made it very easy to register. And then they found out who they are. And then it said, well, which of the other contacts do you want to find out who they know? Because often people were amazed. I had no idea Constantine knew an executive at GE or at Microsoft and which one. So I said like, well, let me plug in the other names of people. And they naturally actually picked names of well-connected people. Because those are the people that were most interested in being able to tap into their contacts for referrals. So that ended up working a lot better than sort of the basic join LinkedIn where people just kind of got lost in the weeds about what it is and how it's going to work in the future. Makes sense. Now, you and I were talking a few weeks ago, and I was talking about all these new B2B communities were coming up and especially around B2B sales. There's organizations like Revenue Collective, Modern Sales Pro, Sales Hacker, Bravado. And when I talked about these B2B communities, you said, well, communities are different than a social network. Could you tell our listening audience a little bit about what you meant by how they're different? Yeah, I define a community as kind of the way one of the grandfathers of this online community concept is Howard Rheingold. There was this community called The Well in Marin. And, you know, it's basically kind of a a big chat board where people are members and there are sort of public discussions between people. And then anybody can contact anybody else. And we found that moving that into the business realm, obviously it was accepted. AOL became very big with the consumer communities. But in business, there's often people who are looking for something. And that's often people who have something. And the people who have something, very easily, they can get flooded with requests. And you know, that's why they get so many phone calls that they don't really respond to or voicemails they listen to. Or people can guess patterns of email addresses and get an email to a decision maker. But because it is so easy, they get so many emails and they really only look at the emails of the names that look familiar. It's kind of like our phone, you know, it's happening even on the phone these days where I know a lot of people who no longer pick up calls unless it's someone who's already on their calling list who shows up with a name opposed to just the phone number because there's so many spam calls. So whenever you make something easy and accessible, that doesn't always work very well. So the way LinkedIn is, there's no ability to sort of frictionlessly contact people. You can invite them if you know them and connect to them directly. But if you want to reach out to someone that you don't know, you don't have that email address to invite them with, you needed to request a referral from one of your contacts. And so that created sort of enough friction that when people got a request, they were interested in responding because they came through someone that they knew. And so that made a big difference. And so to some extent, you can think of LinkedIn as everybody having their own community. My community is my contacts and the people my contacts know. And that's a pretty relevant community for me. And it's a community I can actually utilize, whether it's for research or for hiring or for finding a service provider, because I know there's a trusted contact that connects us. And that is how LinkedIn was operating. It later got changed a little bit, but when we're talking about at this time, that was the only way you could reach somebody is through a referral. That's interesting. I don't think now with so many millions and millions of members, I don't think people understood that it was that trusted connection, i.e. via referral, that really drove the growth in community. And to me, that says that the members saw real value because it was trusted. How else did you measure the value the members receiving when you went from one to three million or three to five? Was it how much time they spent? Was it how many connections they invited? How did you measure value? 
Yeah, good question. I think this also highlights how a community is different or a publisher is different from something like a network like LinkedIn. Because I said one of the things that was very important is when people get a request, do they respond to it? And so that's why you needed to have sort of this friction and this natural process that people already trusted in there. Because when you got something, people responded to it. But note that that's very different from sort of daily visits or weekly visits or length of time. Because it only means if someone is reaching out to you, will you respond, which is a much more narrow engagement. A lot of communities who make money through advertising, for them, the relevant metrics are how often do people log in, how much time do they spend, and those kinds of things. But for us, we're not focused on an advertising business. We thought we could always you know, put some ads in and use that as kind of a secondary approach, but we're always focused on building enough value that someone would pay for it, either themselves or their company. And so value that was generated was really a function of four things. The first one we already talked about is you need to have a certain number of members. If you do not have a certain number of members and your search results come back empty, you don't have the value. I mean, that is a very important first condition. But the second measure of value was what's the quality of the members? Just like if you go to, maybe say, a career fair, and it often attracts a lot of people who are out of work currently, who are desperately looking for work, willing to drive somewhere to go to a career fair. Well, often that quality of people is not really what you're looking for, because maybe there was a reason they are no longer working at their current employer. So often what you want to find is people who are happily employed somewhere else, who are not spending time going to career fairs, obviously, while they're doing that. Or other measures of quality. If you're trying to reach a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, that's the kind of person that a lot of people want to reach. Or a venture capitalist to get investment for your company also. These are all the quality people. So you need to, besides the quantity, you need to have quality Again, quality is not an absolute thing, because when you think about it, sometimes you want an intern who is young, hardworking, and smart. And so even someone without a lot of experience can mean quality, depending on who you look for. But it has to be, obviously, among interns, there are some that really don't know much about. They just went to some college, and you have others who come maybe from a top school or who've already done some other internships, maybe with some people that you know, and then they rise in the quality level. So we needed to have quality was the second criteria. But if you just have quantity and quality, it's still not enough. Because when you do a search like my friend did, the quality people need to have enough information on their profile. So when you do a keyword search or a title search or company name search, that they actually show up. If they just show up with their name and their region and they don't have a lot of information on their profile, even though they are there, if they're not findable, it doesn't really matter. It's as if Google hit a bunch of pages with robot.txt and they can't access the information. It doesn't really matter if they went to visit the site. You have to have the information. So the profile completeness is the third measure that we used. And then the fourth is really this responsiveness. If someone comes up through referral through one of your contacts, how responsive are they? And it was over in the mid 80 percentage when they got a request that they would click through and start a conversation with the person who originated. So that was very good. But note that these people were not necessarily logging in very often. They were busily doing their work and only responding when someone referred someone to them and brought someone to their attention. So you need some kind of friction. And in the early days, it was kind of your social capital. You obviously don't want to ask your contacts, you know, every day, can you introduce me to this person or this person or that person? So, so you choose it carefully. We all have a limited amount of social capital. We need to make sure we help our contacts as well when they are looking for help. 
But what we offered when we started charging for it, and we can talk more about how we analyze sort of our segments, if that's interesting. But what we settled off is we can use basically $10 as kind of a friction. That ensures if someone's spending $10 to contact you, that is a natural point of friction that not too many people will contact you. They must have something that they think you're interested in that might be of value to you because they need to have a certain response rate if they're spending $10 to contact each person. Email is pretty much free, which is why you get so many garbage emails. But an email, when we launched it, cost $10 a piece. And so it's kind of like the cost of a FedEx. How much spam do you get through FedEx? And do you look at your FedEx more or at your email? And I think for most people say, yeah, I look at FedEx because I don't get a lot of those. And usually when there's in there something, it's something like a bank card or you know, something important that I need to sign. And so it was kind of similar to that. When we initiated that pay system of $10 for in-mail, we got to keep the $10, but it also served a useful function because now we could allow people to contact people directly using their cash capital instead of their social capital. And it still provided enough friction that the people who were getting the requests were not getting overwhelmed. And we also built a bunch of things in there that the people could give feedback on the person who contacted them, that people had sort of bad response ratios, their requests were no longer delivered in email, but only in a notification on the website when they logged in. So it is a system that we built quite carefully to balance the different needs that people have on the website. And Constantine, while you were the head of marketing, did you move into the premium subscription or was it more of that pay for the in-mail while you were there? Well, they're really the same. Sometimes people talk about, and I see the Harvard Business School has a case study around LinkedIn and how we generated revenue first and how we thought about it. So if anybody's interested in more details on that, I think the Harvard Business School case study is an interesting one with a lot of good information. But a lot of students, and the writer kind of phrased it a little bit that way, where students are looking in, are you paying sort of a monthly subscription or are you paying $10 a piece? And that was really a secondary consideration for us. The first thing you need to make sure, are you providing something of value? And especially in the case where one person connects with another, there needs to be enough value for both parties in this transaction for it to work. So that was the key thing. Now, we offered at the beginning, you could buy these emails at $10 a piece, or you could buy a monthly subscription where you get three in-mails, but it was only $20. So you're basically getting one in-mail for free every month because you're going to use three in-mails. And it's really similar to how phone plans work, right? There are some that, you know, in the old days, especially where you buy a certain number of minutes, like in a pay-as-you-go plan, or you have a set of minutes that you get through a monthly subscription. So we really offered people a chance of both. Obviously, it was less of a commitment to just spend $10 one time than to put in a credit card that gets charged every month. But on the other hand, of course, for us, once people put in that credit card and got used to it and made that commitment, they would end up being a subscriber for many years. So even if the conversion rate was lower, they ended up being more valuable. And what we learned over time was that it was better to sort of bundle these emails as a subscription. So for a long time, and I don't know if they still exist, but for a long time, you know, you could still buy $10 in mail without becoming a premium member. But since it was better for us, for people to become members, we kind of hid that option more and more and you had to really hunt for it. So I'm not sure if it still exists these days or not, but that was basically the process we went through, just comparing, you know, what works better for our members and how does this impact our revenue? And obviously having subscription revenue is a valuable thing because people know that you kind of have to cancel your subscription rather than having to make a decision to buy another email. So the power of opt-in versus opt-out. You know, you said something earlier about 
communities versus kind of social networks. And you talked about low friction and no friction, kind of starting with the well. I spoke to a founder of a community called Rev Genius on another podcast. His name is Jared Robin. And he's like, we've added about 10,000 members in the first six months. And we're not really sure about how we're going to monetize it. But we wanted to provide a place where people could just talk to fellow professionals who are like them, to share ideas and best practices. And what I'm hearing from you is that low friction, kind of anyone can join, if not managed or even, I use the word moderated, can actually be a dangerous scenario. Is that, am I reading it right? Well, it depends always what your purpose is. You know, I think there may be purposes. I do think there are some very valuable communities focused on very specific areas where people value that kind of open communication. LinkedIn, second year, we started LinkedIn groups. So LinkedIn groups were basically communities within LinkedIn. So people basically opted into the groups. And once you opted in, anybody like in a regular community can contact you. So it had some value, the groups function of LinkedIn. I think it still exists today. But what you often find is that the people who are already very busy, who don't have a lot of time, don't want to be so accessible. And they're very selective about what they're reading and who else is in the group with them. So these larger groups, they find often very noisy and just leading to more inquiries to them and eating up their time. So we found that, you know, it's a good product to have inside of LinkedIn, these communities where people can easily contact each other. And there definitely is a value of accumulating knowledge in the groups, in the queues, being able to ask questions. We did try, you know, in the first four years, also a a question and answer product, which was actually very interesting because it was very popular at Yahoo at the time, Yahoo Answers. And so we thought like, well, you know, maybe we do this for business. And people were actually really good. When you posted something, you got a good number of responses and high quality responses because When people responded to a question, their profile was attached to it. It wasn't anonymous. So when people are anonymous, often, you know, they have less incentive to post valuable stuff, or maybe they're sometimes mean or not very nice. But when your real identity is connected to it, then people are a lot more careful to it. And people did want to manage their reputation at LinkedIn, which provided actually a lot of service providers, a good incentive to answer questions because they said like, hey, if I deliver a high quality answer to this question, people can find me that way and in a good way. They see what good content I'm producing. And so we didn't have any problems. You know, it worked really well. Once you asked a question, you'll get several answers and they were usually quite good. The problem was because we were not anonymous, very few people wanted to ask questions. People felt, you know, I'm a professional. I should know things. And I do not feel comfortable really asking a question. So we did discuss maybe allowing people to do anonymous questions, but not answers. But we never went there and eventually discontinued the product because it took a lot of maintenance. And because of sort of the lack of people wanting to ask things, feeling comfortable with that for their professional reputation, we ended up killing the product. Well, I can tell you, Constantine, there are plenty of people who are very willing to share their advice on LinkedIn today. In fact, I think one of the biggest issues from a qualitative perspective today is how do you know that the advice being shared or the answers being provided are actually of high quality or just someone's personal perspective? And that's a whole other podcast, but it's really interesting that the quality of the conversations today, I think, have decreased dramatically in the last three to five years. Well, I have some thoughts on that. And again, this highlights the difference between a network and a community. 
If you join a group on LinkedIn and people you don't know are there and they just post something, it is quite often promotional and not very high value. You know, you have to sort of specifically opt into that negative experience. What you see in your feed is not anything from groups. What you see in your feed is from your own contacts. What do they post? And so if you have sort of added contacts that you don't really know and trust well, maybe someone you just met a conference once and exchanged a business card with, some people like to collect contacts on LinkedIn. The downside of that is now in your feed, you're going to see whatever that person posts as a status update and links that he posts or she. So it's kind of a product of your own creation because I don't have that issue in my experience of LinkedIn at all because I'm only connected with people that I know and trust that I've typically worked with, either as a client or an employee relationship or an entire partnership. And I know all these people very well. And those are not the kind of people who post, you know, random stuff. And so my LinkedIn feed is of high quality. And that's generally what I recommend people is to not connect with people that you don't know already very well, because that creates just noise in your experience for LinkedIn. Yeah, it's interesting. Today, the number of connections on LinkedIn is almost mimicking the number of followers you have on a Facebook or a Instagram where someone said, oh, I've got 20,000 connections. I'm like, how in the heck can you truly know 20,000 people? Yeah, of course not. And that's, that's kind of why LinkedIn allowed also the follow feature, because that way you can have people who follow you or are interested in your content. But if you don't know them, just like on Twitter, you don't know your followers. So it's kind of they can just decide to follow you without you approving. But for LinkedIn connection, it's always consensual. Someone sends the invitation, the other person approves it. So I think I have somewhere between 500 and 1,000 connections on LinkedIn, and all of these people I can tell you a lot about, and they do not generate a lot of noise. And there's also a feature if you've gotten into trouble by sort of connecting with people that you don't know well, one way is you can disconnect from people, and they do not get a notification, but they might notice that you don't show up as a connection anymore, although if they have so many connections, they probably will never notice. The other thing is you can do is in your feed, similar to Facebook, you can just hide updates from certain people and you can still remain connected and they just never know that you don't even see what they're posting. So there are a couple of ways to handle if someone kind of started off using LinkedIn and then got a little bit carried away in terms of collecting connections. Connections on LinkedIn should really reflect your real network of people that I would say you know well, that you meet with once a year, that sort of thing. I still follow that advice, Constantine, that you gave me, gee whiz, 15 years ago. And when I see all these influencers kind of almost, trolling's the wrong word, but harvesting connections, I'm like, I don't think this is what LinkedIn was meant for, but that becomes a religious discussion. So let me do something now, which all great entrepreneurs do, and that's pivot. And recently on the Metrics of Major podcast, I've spoken to several founders from John Miller, the co-founder of Marketo, and Court Lorenzini was a co-founder of DocuSign. And they both made the decision to leave a company that they co-founded before the story played out. You did the same thing at LinkedIn. Is there any advice that you can give to founders or co-founders who are thinking about when would it be right for me to consider whether it's either exiting the company that they helped co-found or even maybe selling the company they co-founded. Any advice there from your own personal lessons? Sure. You know, I would qualify this advice. It is, you know, everybody has specific circumstances. So for some people, it might be that your spouse has health issues or something else that you need to care more for your parents or 
really want to just spend time with your kids before they leave for college or there could be different personal reasons that go into that. But overall, I would say the first criteria I look at it is the company in a good place and can I trust the team to move it forward? Because obviously one thing when you've worked so hard at something and you've gotten some traction and at LinkedIn, basically when I left, we had how many millions of members, but we were clearly the one business network by that time. When we started, there were dozens of business networking sites. But four years in, there was really not much left in terms of competition. So we had a very dominant position in the market. We already had our first profitable month. And so we knew that the business model was working. So I basically felt the company is in a very solid spot. And also felt there was a good team in place as well. And I started actually the first group of salespeople at LinkedIn to target recruiters with subscriptions, kind of more corporate subscriptions. And, you know, that just needed to be really built out and scaled up. And there's, of course, other revenue things that can be improved over time, like making the ad targeting more specific and tying into other systems and tying into recruiting systems. So there was still a lot of work to be done, but it was at that point, I felt very confident that the the major hurdles had been taken and that was doable. And those kinds of challenges, well, I think that also these execution type challenges also require a lot of talent and skill and are very valuable. Personally, when you start a company, what I found most interesting is kind of that creative process of having a product, still thinking about what's the market fit, adjusting the product quickly and getting to that. And so When an opportunity came to me, actually through trusted contact on LinkedIn, I considered that. I first joined them as an advisor, kind of just in a part-time fashion, uh, but they offered me the role of CEO. So that played a role because I'd never been a CEO before. So I thought that would be interesting to try. And so, you know, that's how I ended up leaving. And I would say in general, those are the things. Make sure the company is in a good place and you trust the team and you have something else that's interesting because the role or maybe the kind of space that is emerging. The company I went to was combining telephony with social networking, which I thought was very interesting because this is not business networking, it was kind of more on the social side. And my space was the big social network at the time. It wasn't even Facebook yet. And I thought it was interesting that a lot of the younger people who are using MySpace were also spending a lot of time on their phones and trying to combine these two spaces. Seemed like a very interesting proposition with lots of potential for membership growth as well as interesting business models as well. So that's how I decided. But I think everybody needs to look at some of these criteria to figure out what's right for them. Yeah, it's very similar to what Court Lorenzini, the co-founder of DocuSign said. He goes, Ray, he goes, I loved going from the concept on a napkin to really proving product market fit. And he goes, the DocuSign, that took us about four to five years. And then when it came time to now really let's scale this and drive it from a commercial and enterprise perspective, he goes, number one, that doesn't interest me as much. Maybe it's not the sweet spot of competency. So because I would rather go and found another company and kind of redo what I did before, which sounds very similar to you, except you went into the CEO to scale a company. Well, it was a very young company. They had just raised their Series A. So it was still, <laughs> it wasn't really to scaling it up, but it, you know, it was, they had the money, they had a core team in place, but it was very much about still iterating on product market fit at that point. But it wasn't my own company. No, there were two founders who started it. 
Well, I will tell you, Constantine, from 1 million to 10 million and now 760 million, you created a, a real legacy here in the Valley. And one of the things that I've always been so impressed with is I know you love going on hikes and having conversations. In fact, almost every time we talk, it's on a hike. And either right before we go on our hike or afterwards, I see that you have someone else that you're hiking with. So how did that habit start where you do a lot of your networking conversations on the hiking trails? Well, so one of the things now at this stage of my career is what gives me a lot of satisfaction is giving back. And I sort of got started in the idea of entrepreneurship at Stanford, where I took a class in entrepreneurship and they, you know, in addition to teaching us some of the concepts and how to write a business plan, they also had Stanford alum like Scott McNeely from Sun Microsystems or the guy from Intuit or Harvard Graphics. You know, they had different people come and, and talk. And often they made themselves available for lunch before afterwards. And I really took advantage of those opportunities and really kind of inspired me to kind of consider that as something I wanted to do. I didn't do it right away because I felt I wanted to get a little experience actually working in startups, kind of make my learnings on some other people's time and learn how other entrepreneurs do things well. So at this point, you know, I do like giving back. I do not feel like I've already started a company. I've been VP marketing. I've been a CEO. I've also been a venture capitalist. I've been an independent board member. So these things I feel like I've already done and repeating things that I've already done is not as interesting to me. But giving back, my parents are both high school teachers. I guess that's a little bit of that in me. And being able to help students who are considering entrepreneurship or have a business plan or trying to get some feedback on it. So those are the kinds of students that I mentor. And I've been doing it now for almost five to 10 years. So some of these entrepreneurs and students are now no longer students, but have been working for five to 10 years. Some of them have gone from entrepreneurship to venture capital. And we still meet over hikes. The hiking comes in place really actually when we started LinkedIn. Reed and I used to meet and discuss how we would build the company and like how do we get members at the Peninsula Creamery down in Palo Alto and, you know, we each order some eggs and something else and talk. And we kind of realized that we're just so engaged in our conversation. We don't even know what we're putting in our body, which was you know, a lot of unhealthy stuff, delicious but unhealthy stuff, but we didn't even notice the taste. So we said like, you know what? We both could use a little more exercise. Why don't we just go for a walk instead of meeting over lunch or breakfast, often it was. So that kind of habit. So we developed a lot of the concepts during those walks. And I just prefer that now because I um, you know, like to get some exercise. It's, sometimes it's actually easier to remember things when you have a conversation and it's at a certain spot. Our memories are sometimes visual. But also people are sometimes a little more open when they're not just sitting more stiffly at a lunch. And it's also for, you know, most of the people I mentor are, are students from Stanford or past students. So students can very easily walk to the Stanford dish and, and do that there. So and I don't have to get on campus directly. So a couple of things that lead to it. But what I found is that, especially with venture capitalists, they're often used to just having lunch meetings or coffee meetings and meeting at the office. And, you know, when they want to meet with me and I say, you know, let's go for a walk. Often what happens is they refer me to the admin and then I say like, well, I'm not really up for a meeting at this other person's office, but if he wants to join me on a walk, that would be good. And the admins are trained to say, what? Well, no, like either the meeting is here or it's at one of these three restaurants. <laughs> so often I find myself actually sending a message directly to the VC and saying, you know what, I'm really not into these lunches at these restaurants. You know, I think you also would enjoy it. And almost never have they said no. You know, they 
they take a walk and then sometimes when I meet them years later, they say, you know what? I now do 10 or 20 or 30% of my meetings walking. Obviously the presentations of the entrepreneurs don't work, but when I do kind of more one-on-one -on -one conversations, I prefer them doing over walks. So I think it's spreading a little bit and I'm not the first one to do it. There were definitely many people who like to do it, including Heidi Roizen and I think maybe even Steve Jobs. Yeah, I remember reading an article about Steve Jobs preferred having his conversations while walking. And I'll tell you, Constantine, whenever I go on those hikes with you, two things happen. Number one, I always feel intellectually stimulated, but I also feel kind of physically exhilarated because I was able to burn off energy and get a workout while I was exercising the mind. I always wanted to make sure I told you how much I appreciate our walks. And I also sincerely appreciate you investing your time to share the benefits of your lessons learned and experience with our listening audience. Thank you for being a guest here on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. I enjoyed it, Ray. I'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics That Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit RevOpsquared.com.